If you have been learning from the Be The Bridge podcast, our work, I want you to consider becoming a financial partner today. And the other way you can become a financial partner is by shopping our store. You can sport our apparel to uh, represent what Be The Bridge stands for. And this donation goes to a special cause. And so just a reminder, um, our vision is seeing that all are equipped to flourish through expanding our reach and continuing to spread the good news of social justice. Um, we are able to pursue this vision and fulfill our mission of empowering people and culture toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial reconciliation through your generous donor support. So thank you for supporting all that Be The Bridge does. Thank you for giving to us. And just remember, we're not the only way, we're just one way to get us on the path to racial equity, racial healing, and racial reconciliation. Thank you so much for your support. You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. NFLPA Executive Committee member Sam Acho join us on the show. Sam, he is the author of Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Sam Acho here on the Rich Eisen Show. Sam, you must not live in Los Angeles. <laughs> Sam Acho, re-elected NFLPA. His brother, of course, Emmanuel Acho, is on uh, speaking. I'm here now joined by my big brother, Sam Acho. The question, Sam, is... Not- Sam Acho is a writer, motivational speaker, and humanitarian. And a committed Christian, he speaks widely at colleges, events, conferences, and churches. And he also co-hosts the Home Team Podcast and the Athletes for Justice Podcast. He is a sports analyst for Stadium, NBC5 Chicago, and the Sportsnet Toronto. He played as a professional linebacker in the NFL for nine seasons and recently hung up his cleats and picked up a microphone in 2020. Let's welcome to the Be The Bridge podcast, Sam Alcho. I am so glad to have you here, Sam. And, um, you know, just for the Be The Bridge audience, I know maybe a couple years ago, uh, maybe maybe last year, actually, um, I saw that you followed me on um, Twitter. Yes. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Who, what? What? Oh! <laughs> And I and I know we followed each other back, so we've been following each other for a little over a year now, and um, so I know you know a little bit about what we do with Be the Bridge, but I don't know 
a lot about what you're doing um, outside of football. And you're so much more than football. And I wanted to introduce you and your work to our Be The Bridge audience. So I want you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing and who you are. And just a little, just a little bit. Just just pretend like they don't know you at all, okay? Awesome, awesome. Because <laughs> uh, y'all probably don't. So this is me. I'm Sam Macho. <laughs> I played nine years in the NFL in the National Football League, which was fun. It was great. I literally just, this COVID year was the first year I didn't play. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I love and I loved it, right? Uh-huh. But I think what's more exciting is a lot of the stuff that I've been doing off the field. And so like specifically, I just wrote a book called Let the World See You, mm-hmm. How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. And I know we'll mm-hmm. talk about that later. Yeah. But also another cool thing that I've been able to do is I, I played for the Chicago Bears. So I was living in Chicago and I have this heart and passion for like, seeing things that are wrong and trying to make them right. Mm. And about a year ago, we got a chance to uh, go to the west side of Chicago and we saw there was a food desert. And Mm. the long short of it is I got some teammates and some friends from different sports together and we we bought a liquor store and turned it into a food mart wow. and the kids are running it. So, so do some of that stuff and, you know, started a nonprofit called Athletes for Justice, which, okay. you know, connecting athletes, uh, pro athletes, collegiate athletes, everyday athletes, weekend warriors, anybody mm. um, around justice causes in their communities. And so doing that, um, what else? Got my MBA from the Thunderbird School of Global Management. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So anyways, that's a little bit. I don't know. I'm trying to think what I love doing stuff on TV like ESPN and Fox. And so that's that's a little bit about me. You see, you know what? You just made everybody that's listen, listening feel like a slacker. So, I mean, you're doing all of this, playing football, starting grocery stores, you know, starting movements like that's incredible. And I, you know, I'm so glad that our audience gets to see this because a lot of times they see people on the field and they don't know the work that people are doing. Um, athletes who are influencers are doing in their communities. And I love um, just the whole story around athletes for Jesus, because you're just not engaged um, in the work. So athletes for justice, I'm sorry, but you're not just engaged in the work. You're also engaging other people in the work. And that's what we need. I mean, because I mean, the, the youth are looking, they're watching and they're learning. And so I am so glad that you um, created that. And so what shaped, I mean, cause you just got a thread of justice throughout like your life, it seems like. What shaped um, this this work of justice for you? Yeah, well, I gotta, building. yeah, well, I got to start from the beginning, and I love the name. Yes, we're athletes for justice, but athletes for Jesus is just as good of a. I thing. know. So we might need to check, we might I was need to giving you a new it. one. I was giving I you know, a new one. I know. We're gonna be uh, doing business as DVA as athletes for Jesus. I love that. Yeah. Um, so, like, honestly, I have to start from the beginning. The thread mm-hmm. of justice started with my dad. Mm, okay. So my mom and dad were both born and raised in Nigeria. And some people who maybe follow or study history know there was a Nigerian civil war. It's called the Biafran War. My dad actually fought in this war. And essentially, um, the British were, in so many ways, kind of had taken over Nigeria and were kind of leaving, but left it in disarray. And mm-hmm. then there was cultural groups who were fighting against each other. And my dad's cultural group was in a lot of ways, like they had the smallest territory, but the larger territory was trying to kind of oppress them. And he was like, no, I need to go fight. I need to go do something. Mm. And so he did something and, and you know, uh, the war ended a few years later, but he still had this passion for like helping people. Mm. And, and so he actually would, 
teach and preach is six, 17, 18, 19 years old on top of buses, tell people about Jesus, right? Mm. But then also, that's why the Athletes for Jesus does fit. Um, but then also, he, he said, man, there's got to be something more. He would see people die from little illnesses, like mm. an insect bite would be a death sentence. Mm. Uh, malnutrition, like uh, people, dysentery, people drinking bad water. He would see that even though he had gotten opportunity to come to America, right? In, in his early 20s or so, he came to America and started almost building this new life. He never forgot about his roots. Mm-hmm. And so he came to America, would go back and forth. He was, you know, some missionaries saw him teaching the word of God. They said, you got to come and teach us because we need whatever you have. And so that was kind of how we first came here. He went back. He brought my mom, right, which was soon to be his wife, to America. But then every single summer, every year, they would go back to Nigeria for these medical missions trips. They would go to these different villages in Nigeria and give out free medical care. They go with doctors, American doctors and nurses, surgeons, dentists, ophthalmologists, Mm. pharmacists, pediatricians, and they would go and just help people in need. And when I say people in need, it's like, I'm I'm not sure if anyone listening is familiar with this TV series called The Chosen. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. pretty much talking about like how Jesus chose his disciples. It's awesome. It's on, you know, it's it's, it's online or whatever. But Mm -hmm. um, like these people, I couldn't walk. These people were blind. Mm -hmm. These people had Mm -hmm. hernias. I mean, it was literally like, because we would come and we'd remove hernias and, and, you know, remove cataracts. It got to a, Mm -hmm. a point where people would hear that we were coming they would come wait in line for days. Wow. And when we finally got there, they would sing, dance, rejoice, but there were thousands of people mm. and we couldn't help everybody. So people were desperate. They would literally walk up to us and say, I need help, I need help. And they'd like pull open, like a, a man would pull open their shorts, show this mm. huge like, hernia, mm. right? Mm. Size of like a, a basketball, volleyball, mm-hmm. help me. And so like doctors would go, and do surgery and they mm-hmm. they would be healed. So like that heart has been in me and my family for years. Mm-hmm. I went on that trip for the first time. I was 15 years old. That's okay. when my parents felt I, was old, felt I was old enough to see and hear some of the stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. And I remember even just me going there and being, <clears throat> excuse me, 15 years old and seeing this kid who probably looked, kid, village kid, who probably looked like he was eight or nine years old and you know, he had a little soccer ball, had some like a dingy cream colored tank top and some mm-hmm. short blue shorts and some sandals that it looked like he'd worn for, for years. And I said, let me just go talk to this guy. So I went up to him and, uh, you know, talking a little bit and you know, we kicked the soccer ball around. I say, hey, man, um, what's your name? What's mm-hmm. your name? And he looks at me and he says, my name is Samuel. Mm. And mind you, my name is Samuel. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, like, nice to meet you. And I said, hey, hey dude, how old are you? I remember I'm, I was 15. This dude, look, he was eight or nine. I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 15. Mm. And I was like, wait, what is really going on? Mm. This dude is a third of my size. No mm. food, no clothes, same name, same age. Yet for some reason, I'm here and he's there, something's not adding up. I have to do something. And so even then, this idea of justice mm-hmm. started to bubble up overseas, but not just overseas, in America as well. I went to 
uh, a church in, I grew up in Dallas, went to a church in South Oak Cliff. Uh, okay. So South side, South part of Dallas called Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, predominantly yeah. black. Yeah. So Tony Evans, Oak Cliff, OCB. Uh, okay. So that's okay. like my family. Um, and, but I went to school in North Dallas, a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. And so even on like Sundays or Wednesday nights, when we would go to church, we would go and let's say you stop to get gas or stop in the neighborhood and you would see like, man, like how come in the North where I go to school, there's healthy food, there's organic food, there's mm-hmm. like, you know, but then on this neighborhood, all you see are honey buns and, and, and donuts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something's not adding up. Something's not right. And I think that kind of is what helped even spurn some of the stuff we've done recently in Chicago, where a few days after George Floyd was murdered, me and my teammates and mm-hmm. friends wanted to do something. Like we said, mm. something's got to be done. Right. And we were right. ready to, we were going to like, okay, let's, maybe we can protest. Mm. Right, let's protest. We said, okay, no, no. How about we go and post uh, mm. a, a tweet to the president? Like, let's mm. do so. We were ready. And so I said, okay, hold on. Let me just call somebody in the community and see what she thinks. And I called this woman. Her name is Donita Travis. She leads a nonprofit called the By the Hand Club for Kids. And I said, hey, what do you all need? Because we're ready. Mm. Whatever you need, we are ready. Like, well, you, you know, I know y'all lead these kids. Like, we'll, 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 we'll march with them. We'll put up signs, whatever y'all need. She said, Sam. Honestly, these kids in our community, mm. like, all they need is someone right now to listen to them. Yes. To listen. And so I said, but I want to, but I want to just listen. And so I said, all right. And so I got together athletes from all the different teams in Chicago, the Bulls, the Cubs, the Blackhawks, the White Sox, the Chicago Sky, which is our WNBA team, mm-hmm. uh, even players who were in the NFL who played at Northwestern, which is Chicago's college team. And we just got together on the west side of Chicago, about 10 of us, and we sat and we listened. There were about 30 kids from the, both the south and the west side, and then about 10 or so police officers. And we mm-hmm. sat, really, we stood up outside. It was COVID, so pandemic, socially distanced, masked on. And we stood in these things called peace circles or listening circles. Yeah, mm-hmm. And we just kind of aired out our grievances. And some of the things that we heard for from the officers, right? They said, man, I feel like our job is to protect and serve. And many of our comrades have forgot about the serve part. Mm. Some of the kids, you know, some of these black kids in the community were saying, like, how come all we see on TV are people who look like me getting killed? Mm. How come that's all that's on the news? Even the athletes were saying, man, I thought I would be different when I got this success or I had some kind of clout, yet I get treated the exact same way. Mm. There's a problem. And so after sitting and listening for an hour or so and talking, we decided to take a tour Mm. of the west side of Chicago. Many of us, you know, many people, we live in these communities, but we don't get close to the communities. We said, let's just get close. And so we hopped on a bus with some of the kids as well. They were our tour guides and we took a tour of this neighborhood called Austin on the west side of Chicago. Because mm. we wanted to see, like you saw on the news, like looting and rioting in yeah, Chicago. Yeah, and this yeah. is, you know, what about <laughs> Chicago? We said, let's really see what's going on. And, exactly. yes, we saw, and we saw buildings boarded up. Mm-hmm. And yes, we saw places that had been broken into. But what was even more telling as we took this tour, we were about 30 minutes in. And I asked one of the guys, Jason Hayward, he plays for the Chicago Cubs, all-star, MLB all-star. I said, hey, Jason, you've been looking as we've been driving, like how, how many, how many grocery stores have you seen? Mm. You know, we've been around driving around for 30 minutes. How many grocery stores have you seen on our 30 minute ride so far? He said, I mean, maybe, maybe one. I said, okay. 
I said, okay, that makes sense. How, how many, how many liquor stores have you counted mm. on our 20, 30 minute drive? He said over 10. He said, that's a problem. Mm. What if we could do something about it? And one of the kids, her name is Azaria Baker, 15 years old. She was 14 at the time. She was our tour guide. She saw us as we were looking and observing and saying, whoa, this is crazy. And oh, no. And she stood up. She got up, got picked up her microphone, you know, the little bus megaphone deal. And, mm-hmm. and she said, hey, I know a lot of y'all see this as a field trip. I'll come here. You spend 30 minutes, an hour, and you leave. But I want y'all to remember that some of us choose to live here. We build families here. We call this place our home. There's no going back for us. So I hope you'll remember that as you leave. And we did. So we left that tour. We exited the buses and kind of took another 10, 20 minutes, said, guys, what if we could do something? What if we could do something? We have money. We have influence we have followers like we have time right sports were canceled mm-hmm. what if we could do something what if we could maybe buy one of these liquor stores and turn it into a food mart what if we could do something and so we heard that idea and then we said okay let's run it by the kids first like is this something they even want and so we right. met with them the next week because you don't want to come in and say hey we got this great idea we're gonna come and it's our exactly. idea exactly no so we so we actually sat down with them and we said hey i called that nonprofit leader donita said hey can we get some kids together and just hear from them? So we sat down the next week and I, you know, we asked them, we said, Hey, so we have this idea, but we want to run it by you first. We're thinking about trying to raise some money and buy a liquor store and build a food mart. But do y'all even need a food mart in your community? We said, where, where do you get your food from? And they said, Oh, we, we get our food from McDonald's or the gas station. Mm. We said, no, no, no. Like, I understand like fast food, you know, I eat McDonald's from town and Chick-fil-A, or whatever. but like, no, where do you get your food? Said, the gas station is where we get our food. We said, okay. I said, okay, let me rephrase. Okay. Let me, let me, let me just make it clear. Where do you get healthy food from, right? Something healthy, something good for you, something organic. They said, Sam, we don't have anything here. I said, no, what do you mean? Like, come on, like organic. They said, Sam, if we want to get organic food, healthy food, we have to drive 45 minutes to the next city to find something organic. So yes, we do need healthy mm. food in our community. Mm. And so that started this journey and this process of these kids really leading the way and saying, okay, what, what would we want it to look like? Mm. What do we want it to feel like? What do we want it to smell like? What do we want, what do we want to call it? You know? And so while they were planning, they came up with this idea of, of, a food mart, a pop-up mart called Austin Harvest, right? It's in the neighborhood called Austin. So Austin Harvest. And they want to, they're talking about building community through fresh food. And it wouldn't just be this mart that like outside people come in. They wanted to run it. They wanted to manage it. They wanted to work there. And so it became this thing that was open up Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays after school from two to six on the west side of Chicago, right? Me and some friends of mine, athletes, we raised about a half a million dollars, bought this liquor store, and then tore it down. We had a liquor store tear down party about four weeks, exactly four weeks after that first meeting. Mm. Had a liquor store tear down party. And then I invited Roger Goodell, who's the commissioner of the NFL. He's an acquaintance of mine. He showed up. I invited Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. She's friends with that nonprofit. She showed up. Invited 
David Brown, the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, he showed up and the kids and the athletes and we had this liquor store tear down party. Mm. We tore it down and about seven, eight weeks later, we opened up this pop-up mart, Austin Harvest, that was open three days a week and it was supposed to be kind of a temporary thing. Let's just see how it goes because the kids are working there. Well, after about two or three months, the kids said, what if we can make this permanent? Because, you know, Chicago gets cold and wintertime yeah. is in June, right? So, like, by, by November and December, it was getting a little bit cold. Um, and then even COVID had kind of ticked up. So, so the, yeah. the, the government was closing things down. We said, what if we could make it permanent? So then we started dreaming again of building a permanent facility. Started talking with some grocers in, in Illinois. And they said, we'd love to help provide the food. Started talking with some other athletes and friends and people in business said, hey, we'd love to help build this thing. And so actually... On June 23rd of this year, we're doing a, a, a radiothon, a 24-hour radiothon that's going to support the permanent building structure of Austin Harvest. We, the kids have been meeting, Anna and I have been meeting with an architect. We've been meeting with the city to see if we could make this permanent. So we have a drawing set up and we have it all set. Now we're just raising the funds and all this info is on uh, athletesforjustice.org. You'll see a tab. It says, it says Austin Harvest if anyone wants to donate and help build that because we're going to build it. It's going to be permanent, long-lasting, forever community through fast food. And so to answer your question of where did this, this threat of justice begin, it began in the womb, really. Mm. Um, but then it's going to follow me to the tomb. Yes, I love it. Oh, my goodness. That is, there's so much in there. First of all, I'm, I'm imagining this. Like, I, I'm picturing, you know, this grocery store and um, just the hope that it's going to bring to those students to know that you didn't just come take a tour and walk away, but you're investing in the community, you're investing in them. And when pe- when when communities have hope, um, that fuels um, change and transformation. Uh, when there's hopelessness, um, it breeds lawlessness. And so these are the, the answers. These are solu- the solutions. And this is the thing. Our communities, we have the solutions. It's not like we're trying to figure out, okay, what can be done? The solutions are right there. They just need sometimes the the opportunity, the act access for it and the resources and then a lot of times the financial resources. And so um, this is incredible. I want to come and take part. So um, those of you who are listening and if you want to support this, you can go to um, Athletes for Justice and find out more information. And so I'm really inspired by this um, work that you guys are doing. And this is incredible. So you you mentioned, you know, a lot of your your justice, you know, starting from the thread, um, the tomb, excuse me, from the um, from birth, really from birth, you <laughs> yeah. know, from your father and everything that he's gone through and how he didn't turn his back on his country he came um and he looked back you know and and i love that and so he taught you to look back and to look forward and to be concerned about your neighbors around you um and and you can see that in your in your life as an early age um what is some of the the i mean i mean what is the greatest lesson that you think your parents um taught you is that um just to care about justice? What are some other things that your parents instilled in you that um, you will carry that on with your children and hopefully they carry it on with their children, uh, just leaving that type of legacy? Yeah, well, I'm not sure who our listeners are, but I just got to be honest with y'all. Like the, the yeah. lesson that I that will never leave me, and I, I remember hearing this 
in a village in Nigeria. My dad had built this compound, right? His, his father's land. He came to America, was successful. He went back and built a home mm-hmm. for us in Nigeria. He said, I don't, I don't want y'all to forget about your roots. And so we would go and we would sit in the living room. It was almost like this, you know, these steps that go down to this living room. And, and we'd all sit, family and even some of the missionaries and parents, and they would sing this song. Mm. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna sing it. And the song goes. Um, this is what I learned from my parents. I learned that it goes. Prayer is the key. Prayer is the key. Prayer is the master key. Mm. Cause Jesus started with prayer and ended with prayer. Prayer is the master key. Amen. Like what I learned. Mm. is that prayer is the key. Because mm. the Bible says, okay, justice is mine, says the Lord, I mm-hmm. will repay. Yeah. So some people will say, okay, well, shoot, it's not my job to go and get justice. God's mm-hmm. going to figure it out. But also like Micah 6, 8 also says that we should seek justice, mm-hmm. that we should love mercy, mm-hmm. that we should walk humbly with God. And so it's also our jobs to seek justice in unison with others. Mm-hmm. And in unison with God, before we started this podcast, you and I were talking about some friends of ours in Chicago. You're like, man, I can't wait to go visit them. Like, like uh, they're doing work in the community and I can't wait to go and see what they're doing. Right. You talked about when we just started, how we followed each other on social mm-hmm. media. I saw what you were doing. I, fo- fo- I said, I need to find out about this woman. I saw you. I bought your book. I was like, I need to, I, I just need, there is something I need to mm. learn. I, don't, I need to learn yeah. from Tasha. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so like I learned that seeking justice isn't mm. something that you do in a vacuum. Right. It's not something that you do alone. Right. Mm. A lot of the, the main thing that gets in the way of anyone trying to go after a goal when it comes to justice and making change, it's logos and it's egos. Mm. Yes. It's got to be my thing. I want my mm. people. I want it's logos and egos. So I've learned, man, if you strip away those logos, if you tear those down, if you don't allow egos you can make massive change my dad was a pastor at at, at um at oak cliff bible fellowship with the, tony evans there are a lot of people who may, maybe know who he is mm-hmm. for 20 years wow 20 years this dude loves teaching the word of god he'd go to nigeria and like thousands will pack up to listen to him mm. yet, yet he only got a chance to teach or preach maybe four times a year mm. at the at the church in texas because it was like humility right you know and so like I've learned prayer is the key. Mm. I've learned you got to do it together, right? Be humble, no logos, no no egos. And then the, the most important thing that I've learned is that all you have to do is use what you have. Wow. Nothing more, mm-hmm. nothing less. People ask, man, y'all do the, you know, my, my Living Hope Christian Ministries is the, is the nonprofit that my parents started. They've been doing it for 30 years. And people ask, man, are, are they in the medical field? My dad, my dad is, is, a, is a marriage counselor. So he's not a wow. doctor. He's not a surgeon. His PhD is in psychology and he sees, you know, people, you know, pro athletes to musicians, right? Like, and he does it, you know, he makes a great living doing that. But he, uh, he, he uses what he has. Yes. What he has is a passion and a heart for people. Mm. 
when he goes and sees these people hurting, his heart breaks and he says, I have to do something. He loves, he has, he's super gregarious. So he brings people together. That's his gift. My mom was a registered nurse and she went back to school, became a nurse practitioner. Now she's a doctor and nurse practitioner. So now she's got, she always had that medical background, but they had a heart and they had relationships. Mm. So people from the church, y'all got, you're a doctor, come through. You're a nurse, come through. I know this area. Come with me. We'll figure it out. And they had a house. He built a house there. So he come stay at my house. Mm. And all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people are being saved. They actually opened up a medical center, Living Hope Medical Center in Nigeria. We raised some money and, and built that. So now Nigerian doctors and nurses and surgeons are working there and feeding the people, helping right. the people. You don't have to be a doctor or a nurse. You don't have to have a book. You don't have to have a podcast. You don't have to have mm. a follower. You have to have a heart. Yeah. You have to bring what you have. And like, I'm ex- I get excited about this, right? Because I, you know, let the world see you, right? This is like the book that I wrote talks all, a lot about this, but I'm writing another book uh, that really pins down that point of justice, right? Change starts with you. The change yes. that you want to see, it ain't got to start with the person down the street mm-hmm. or the person on TV or the person with the podcast. No, it starts with you. Yeah. And it starts with those things that break your heart, those things that just don't feel right. Right. And then doing something about it. 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 This is so good. Aren't you loving this conversation? We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Friends, life is hard. And sometimes we need a little help. Navigating the stress of sudden changes in income, health complications, and or the loss of someone close can be overwhelming. Not to mention the stress of the tense time of political and social disharmony. Honestly, at this time, we all could use a little help. Well, guess what? There is help. There's help through BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P. BetterHelp.com makes professional counseling. It makes it accessible, affordable, and convenient for anyone who may be currently struggling with life's challenges. If that's you, you can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp.com offers access to licensed, trained, and experienced and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board licensed professional counselors. We want you to start living a happier life today as a listener. And as a Be The Bridge listener, you'll get 10% off of your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash be the bridge. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash be the bridge. So you can join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. You guys, it's a difficult time and we need these tools and we need a little help to encourage us on the way. Thanks for staying with us. Let's get back to our conversation. And that's what justice is about, making things right and, you know, making things that are broken and and the reordering of things, you know, that leads us to have a reconciled, you know, um, community. And so I think that is just, uh, you know, that's a beautiful thing uh, when you start talking about that. And I always say that, you know, if you're breathing, you can do something. If you have breath in your body, there is something that you can do. Sometimes, you know, I just tell people to do the next right thing. What is the next thing you know to do? 
Okay, do that thing because sometimes I think people are looking for a grand gesture or, you know, um, they don't know where to begin or where to start. But the whole key is like to start somewhere. And I love that. Um, Now, we mentioned about Nigeria and I want you to say your full name um, for everyone. And I want you to tell us a little bit about your um, Nigerian history and how your parents made sure that you didn't forget. Your parents made sure that um, you you looked back and that they exposed you to your Nigerian culture. And I know you were born and raised in the States. But um, as we were talking before, your wife was born and raised in Nigeria. So I want to hear about that heritage and I want to hear about how you met and like, you know, and I, um, and what have been some of the cultural challenges, you know, being brought up here in the States and your wife being raised in Nigeria. Yeah. So my full name, my government name. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, and I'll hit it with the accent too. Samuel Onyedi Kachi Acho. So Samuel is my, is my first name. It means Mm. heard by God. Right. Mm. My parents, came to America they, they were praying for kids right God bless like I have two older sisters like so we were so grateful and they were praying man we'd love to have a son because in Nigerian culture we need somebody to kind of take over like the, the household or whatever mm-hmm. and so like God gave them a son so Samuel heard by God Onye di Kachi it means who is like unto God another way to translate it means that there is nobody you can compare to mm. God Onyedi kachi onyed onyedi means who is ka mm. like chi god onyedi kachi in in Igbo which is a Nigerian dialect mm-hmm. and and so that's my name and growing up you know you it, you know it's funny like before Ooh, we started that just brought chi I'm sorry it's like just the power of names and why names are so important and I'm like hold on to that history because as an African American like that's something that I don't have. You know, mm. and and it's something that when I hear that the power and what your name means, um, that means something. And so I'm so grateful that you have that and you embrace that and that you acknowledge that. Um, it's a beautiful thing. I'm yeah, sorry. No, Go ahead. <laughs> no, you're right. Now, I mean, like, I, there's so much power. I mean, even mm-hmm. even uh, my wife. So mm-hmm. we met in Nigeria, and her name her name is Ngozi. And Ngazi, mm-hmm. or Ngazi, if you want to say it that way, mm-hmm. it means blessing. Mm-hmm. And everywhere she goes, she's a blessing. Mm-hmm. Even the way we met, the way we met, she was a blessing. I, I told you, I told you all when I was 15, I went on that trip for the first time. Well, right around that time, my, my dad was looking for someone to help take care of his mother who lived in Nigeria. So my grandmother was getting older, getting advanced in years, 80 something. And um, her health wasn't, do, wasn't great. And so he said, man, is there anybody who can help mm-hmm. take care of her? And so like there was a, a young girl who was helping with her. And, and I think that girl wasn't a good fit. And so my grandma was like, you got to go. And so my dad was like, <laughs> we got to find somebody. She, my, she does not play. Um, so my dad said, we got to find somebody. And so he called up one of his friends and said, hey, do you know anyone who could maybe help just for like Christmas break? Because it was right around, you know, mm-hmm. Christmas break. Do you know anybody? And at the time... Uh, Ngozi, this young girl, was living in a city called Jos, and there was a ton of turmoil. It was, you know, Nigeria is like the north is predominantly Muslim, the south is predominantly Christian. In the middle, mm-hmm. there's a lot of turmoil, and Jos is in the middle. And she was living in Jos because her dad had died when she was young. She had five other siblings. They didn't have a lot, so she was staying with her auntie. 
and um, like there was kind of just war in a lot of ways was kind of starting. And so, so she moved mm-hmm. from the center of Nigeria to the south, where my people grew up, the southeast. And her mom said, hey, can you just come for like two weeks? Just take care of one friend of mine, take care of his, 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 his mom. So she said, great, sure. And so at 15 years old, she moved from the city. She was living into the village to help take care of my grandma. Well, right around that time was when I first came on that trip. And we would go, you know, every Christmas and New Year's to kind of see family mm-hmm. and everything. And so like, that's when we first met, but we didn't talk. Okay. We didn't talk. And I remember there was this older <laughs> lady who came on this trip. Who, her name was Miss Alice. She was from Tampa, Florida, probably about 60 something years old, maybe almost 70. And we were sitting, I was 15 and we're sitting in that same like living room area and and uh, me and some of the people who came from America just sitting talking and Miss Alice was sitting in her old rocking chair and just sitting and rocking and and she looked at me and she said, you know what, Sam? I said, yes, Miss Alice. She said, you're going to make a great husband one day. And I'm like, what is, what is she talking about? What do you mean? Great husband? You know, I'm 15. What is she? Doing? And she and then she's rocking and she says, and you never know. The woman of your dreams might be right under this very roof. Oh wow! As she matchmaking, matchmaking. <laughs> as she says that, Tasha. As she says that, Ngazi walks by. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> like, what is this? And so, like, but mind you, didn't think too much of it. I'm like, uh-huh. what is she talking about? Fitz, yeah. Well, fa- I would go every year, and I would see her every year, and I'm like, who is this young? What? Like, every she was taking care of my grandmother, and like mm-hmm. she'd been, you know, it was supposed to be a two weeks thing, and my grandma's like, no, I need you to stay because uh-huh. I love you, and you love uh-huh. me, and so. Every year I would go and go and go. Finally, I I just got drafted to the NFL. I was 22 years old, maybe 23. Finished my first season. I went back for that medical mission trip. I brought one of my teammates. His name is Calais Campbell. Plays for the Baltimore Ravens. He's 6'8", 300 pounds, but he's the nicest guy in the world. He's one of my best friends. He came with me on this trip. And on the whole 14-hour flight, uh-huh. we were talking about, you know, like, like relationships and girls. Like there's a girl he had just met who he like was falling in love with. And, mm-hmm. and I was saying, man, I'd love to, you know, just be married one day and all these things. And, and we land <laughs> and he sees her. Uh-huh. He sees her and he says, bro, who is that? Are y'all related? She's beautiful. And I'm like, bro, hold on. You just told me about this girl you're in love with. What are you, are you trying to? He's like, no, no, no. I'm not talking about for me. I'm talking about you. Like, this is everything you've ever talked about. You always talked about wanting someone who understood the culture and understood Nigeria and understood uh-huh. your family and loved God. And like, what are you waiting for? Uh-huh. And so what? he kind of like made that push. And and I, more of the story, the full story is in, in Let the World See You. It's in the book. So y'all can find it there. It's actually $2.99 on Kindle right now. There's this, It got chosen as an oh, Amazon cool. uh, thing. So it's $2.99. Okay. But um, anyways, um, that was the beginning of our relationship. This, wow. this, this, you know, seeing her year after year, but also finally... I would the love friend to giving you the that friend, nudge. He gave me a nudge. It wasn't me with the courage. Like the friend put... He literally... Like, like Tosh, three, like a couple of days later, I still hadn't even talked to her. This is like a 10 day trip. We're like four days and I hadn't even said a word. I was scared. I was scared, Tosh. I was, oh my so I was goodness, like, okay, I love gonna... it. And so she asked my wife, actually, the, the, like, I think it was a Tuesday. Um, and I was hanging out with the kid, with some of the kids in the community as we were waiting to help uh-huh. some of their parents and just laughing, joking. There's two mm-hmm. young girls. Uh, I was just laughing. They're probably 10, 12 years old. We're just talking about life or whatever. And we're just talking outside and we're talking, laughing. 
all of a sudden they see Ngazi walk uh-huh. from inside the building towards outside. Uh-huh. And, and we're talking about like school and grades uh-huh. or whatever. And they stop me. They say, wow, who is that? She's beautiful. Is that uh-huh. your wife? I said, <laughs> I said, huh? All the signs. All, all the, signs. the signs. And so anyways, <laughs> I said, no, I, I don't. I kind of looked up like to the sky. I don't know. God, is this the sign? Like, what do you mean? And so, and so we had our first conversation. But the next day, she actually, Ngazi, because Calais and I were rooming together. Uh-huh. We, you know, usually in the mornings we'll wake up early and do like a devotion and we'll go to the uh-huh. mission field. So we'll have someone do a wake up call. She came and knocked on the door for the wake up call. Usually she wasn't the one who did it, but this time for whatever reason she did. Uh-huh. Hey, letting y'all know, you know, we're starting in about 30 minutes. I said, okay, great. Thanks. I'm closing the door. She stops. She says, oh, by the way, I'd love to talk to you sometime today if you have a chance. Ooh. Ooh. And my wife is very her. like, she's like introverted <laughs> whatever. And so I was like, I was kind of awkward. Like, oh yeah, we could talk. I'm, I don't know what to. Um, you know. And Calais, my teammate's like, oh, she likes you. She likes. I'm like, bro, are we in high school? Like, what are we doing? And so, anyways, oh, we find some time later on that day to talk. And and I mean, honestly, like we sat down, and I found, and I'm like, so what do you want to talk about? I was being a little punk. I was oh being my scared. god. I was so I was so immature. I said, what do you want to talk about? Tasha. She looks at me. She says, I think I like you. Oh, okay, okay. I she say, was I, I was like, okay. Um, I, I, I like you too. too. I like you too. I, me, you. I, I don't know. And, you know, and um, I said, well, well, I like you too. Now that that's out there, what do you think we should do next? And her response, and I'll end kind of here. She said, I think we should pray. Oh, I think we should pray. And so, like that, that's when I knew. And so, wow. Um, so, anyways, that's how we got together. And and. Um, Wow! Yeah, yeah. and uh, what was the lady in the rocking chair? That wasn't your grandmother. Alice. That was so, no, that wasn't Miss Alice. Was Miss Alice, yeah. Who Miss Alice years tried before. to tell you? She tried to tell me. She tried to, and I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to yeah. listen. So I'm learning. I could either listen to Miss Alice or wait seven, eight years to do what I know I'm supposed to do. And then you had the nerve to say what we gonna talk about. You know what? We gonna have to follow up with that. Come on now, Christian men. Come on now. Like, she should have said, you know what? I was just gonna talk to you about dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Just to see what you were gonna do. Yes, I was such a punk. I was was scared. I was so, I didn't know, you know I mean? People think, I I don't know who listens, but like, if there's women listening, like yeah. a lot of the a lot of men, we love to portray courage. Mm, that's good. But we are we can be so scary sometimes. Yeah. Of yeah. little things that it's like it's so easy. But sometimes our egos, um, we don't want to bruise them. Mm. And if we put ourselves out there, it can be like, oh man, my ego is bruised. And so I think that's why I'm not I'm not condoning it, yeah. but I'm saying like Man, like I'm trying to find more men, or better, I'm trying to be more of a man mm. who leads with love mm. and leads with courage and leads with honesty and authenticity. Yeah. Like who says, "Man, I, I, I'm in love with you," and I don't know, I don't know if you even I don't know what to have say. interest, but I just, I just, <laughs> you know, what I mean, like my brother-in-law, right. my wife has a twin brother. Oh wow, his name okay. is Emeka, and that's 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 the kind of man he is. He's he, mm. he's in America now, but he lived in Nigeria, and he. There's a young a young woman from uh, who came actually on one of these trips with us. It's not a matchmaking trip, but it I happen. know I'm like, wait a minute, I may yeah. need to go. On you, know trip you know what I'm saying? Hey, the, the invitation is open. Um, but yeah. he he saw this woman and he was like, oh, that's my wife. Mm. Wow. Like there's something about you, and I'm not letting you. And he just told her, I'm, I'm wow. not letting this go. You know, and she was like, um, who are you? Like I don't know you. <laughs> um, 
but there was something. And so like, yeah. I want to be that kind of man as opposed to the, uh, who I was, where it was like, well, what do you want to talk about? And, yeah, you know I, mean? I don't yeah. know. You know, it's like, that's not real, real manhood. That's more like cowardice. Yeah, I love that you're, and, and I think, you know, you, the other thing is leading with humility because I think it takes great humility and vulnerability to admit, you know, where you were and where you are and j- just to have insight and, uh, and self-awareness like that to say, you know, uh, I was immature or, you know, it's because I was afraid, I was scared. And so, you know, a lot of times people will not admit that, that, hey, you know what? I didn't say anything because I was afraid. I was afraid of rejection or I was afraid, you know, that I wasn't good enough or all those things. And I think sometimes when we're honest with ourselves, we can be honest with other people. And so I love that how this story turned out because I'm telling you, you were fighting it all the way. Yes. <laughs> and like, this is a movie, right? Sam, this yeah. is a movie. Like this whole story is a movie. And I know that you've written a book, um, let the world see you. Um, Describe, uh, you know, you described a little bit about what the book is about and it's on sale. So those who are listening, you can go get it. Well, probably by the time we air it, I don't know if it'll still be on sale. It'll but be on go, sale. Don't worry, Tasha. It's going to be on sale. But go buy it it's anyway. Be, yeah. It don't have to be on sale. Yes. Go support. Go yes. buy it. <laughs> um, you know, and it, d- just in you where you describe where, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about being your authentic self. And how do you see this like as, as men, especially as as black men, um, do you feel like, you know, there's this, there's this, um, the the culture or our, our, our um society puts this thing on you where you 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 mask yourself where you're not your authentic self where you have to um um portray that you're stronger or you're not vulnerable or you can't cry or you know all of those things like how how do you think our society does that, you know, especially to uh, men, but specifically I'm talking about black men and how did you break through that? Question of the century. I know. <laughs> I'm like, in my mind, it's like, ding, ding, ding. Like, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Like, ding, 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 ding. That's the one because we're taught to hide. Mm. Yeah. As black men, Men in general, sure. Mm-hmm. But then black men, mm-hmm. like you're taught to, even if you want to be vulnerable, it's like it's frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Even if you want to be honest about how you feel about something, it's laughed at. It's frowned mm-hmm. upon, not just by the black community, by all, like all community. Mm-hmm. And then even people who look at you, I'm six foot three, 260 pounds. Mm-hmm. And people look at me and it's automatic intimidation. And I'm black, right. by the way. Right. You know, and so I noticed you said that. I, I'm going to just cut you off right here, and then I'm going to bring you back. And sorry for that, but I noticed something that you said when you described your friend that went with you, um, that noticed um, your yeah. wife. Yeah, and you described him as I think six eight, eight. three hundred mm-hmm. pounds, and you said, "But the nicest guy." Mm-hmm. And I and I and I just pinpoint that in my head that it's like. You described him, but we, you had to add, but the nicest guy, because there is a stereotype that a person that size, and you know, and I'm assuming that he's yep, African American, African-American, yes. you know, that is not friendly. And I, cause I do that to my brother all the time. I say, you know, my brother's, you know, six, four and a half and, you know, big guy, but he's the sweetest teddy bear. It's like, I have to give this disclaimer. Mm-hmm. 
Why did we do that? Go ahead and finish. I just we we can come back to that. No, but I didn't want to lose stay that. There. Yeah, we need to stay there because you feel like you have to give this disclaimer of like, no, he's not going to hurt you. Mm. He's not a threat. Yeah, and whether it's subconsciously or maybe even overtly, it's like. I have to. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't say that about him or about me, mm-hmm. people already automatically assume I'm I'm a threat. Yeah. Just because of what they've been taught. Mm-hmm. I mean, like mm-hmm. I remember driving through the city of Dallas, even as a kid, and seeing signs, it's like, you know, wanted, you know, they have those mm-hmm. big billboards or, you know, it'll say for murder and it'd be a black dude. Mm-hmm. Every time, always a black. Turn on the news. A black man from Indianapolis. You needn't to be a criminal profiler to draw a mental sketch of the killers who broke so many hearts. They are young black men, likely in their teens or in their early 20s. After the arrest of two black men at this Philadelphia Starbucks on Thursday. Chicago's South Side. These streets are home to some of the most dangerous gangs in America. Always a black, a black dude. And I'm like, so white people don't kill people? Right. Like, there's, I know. Yeah, they been, You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so, okay, so if they do, then how come the only thing I'm seeing on the news, the only thing I'm, th- thing I'm seeing in advertisement on a billboard is a black guy? Mm. Mm. It's program, it, 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 whether you want to believe it or not, mm-hmm. it starts sticking in your head. Yeah, it cues us. It mm-hmm. cues us to danger. And so, mm-hmm. I got, Naturally, yes, I'm a competitor and all those things, but naturally I'm a I'm a calm, gentle, loving, caring person. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I always have to lead with that mm. so that I can be accepted. Mm. And if I don't, then there's a chance I could be yeah. an outcast. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's that's kind of the internal and even sometimes external battle. Mm-hmm that I deal with. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. let me be extra nice so they don't think otherwise. Yeah. Or let you me know? smile a lot. Right. Or or let me seem, appear less threatening. Like I make myself small Smaller. in a room mm-hmm. and it's like, you can't do it, but it's like you do it in your mind. It's like, mm-hmm. and just the, the psychological damage that that does, like, you know, it's like you're trying to shrink yourself in a room, you know, where you can't shrink yourself, but you're, 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 you're lowering yourself so that you appear less threatening. And I mean, there's so much in that. And, um, that, that really, um, you know, impacts you, you know, spiritually and emotionally. And, um, you know, I think Langston Hughes um, has this, um, uh, no, wait a minute, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I think it's Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I'm sorry. Um, but he has, he has this poem, We Wear the Mask. And, um, you know, and, and I see that so much of uh, in our in our lives and when I think about being your authentic self one of the things that I said you know uh, when I um, started being in more predominantly white spaces I was like if I'm going to be in this space 
And if God is calling, God, if you're calling me in this space, I'm going to be my full self. Mm. I'm going to walk five, ten like I am (laughs) and take all this dark chocolate in that space and be who you authentically created me to be. And if people don't like it, they're just not going to like it, you know. And so I can't be someone that I'm not because I'm not being authentic. You know, I'm true to myself. And I I think that's some of the, um, I guess, talking that you had to do to yourself, you know, um, you know, being a football player, all these things and um, biases and stereotypes that come along with all of this. Um, I, I guess that's some of your process and why you kind of wrote this book. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I found myself trying to carry all this weight of being mm. who everyone else wanted me to be. Mm. And that weight was heavy. Mm. It was a lot to carry it. And I didn't I did not even realize that I was carrying it. It wasn't mm-hmm. until I saw some of the effects of this my pretense on my marriage. Mm. I saw mm-hmm. some of the effects of my pretense on my relationship with my kids. I saw some of the effects of this pretense on like me as myself. Mm-hmm. Like who I was like, you know, I'd be getting angry at little things. Mm. I would be like snapping for no reason. Well, not for no reason, but I, I didn't know I couldn't I didn't know why. Yeah. I would try to cope in different ways. Uh, if I ever, if there was ever an emotion that I didn't think people would accept, I, I didn't know how to process my emotions. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember sitting down with a friend a, one week before we're getting ready to start my mm-hmm. eighth year in the NFL, our new, new season, new coach, going to the playoffs, all these things. Just got a new contract. And I was struggling. I wasn't doing well inter- interpersonally. Mm-hmm and intrapersonally, like within myself. And I sat with my friend and I said, hey man, I, I, I just need to get back to football. Mm. We, start, we start our season in a week. I've been in the off season with me pretty much by myself for the last few months. I just mm. need to get back to football and, and then everything will be okay. Mm. Then everything will be okay. And he, and he looked at me and he said, Sam, if that's how you feel right now, I'm concerned about what happens when when you retire, mm. when football's taken away. And as he's sharing, and as I'm even sharing about some of my struggles, like I'm starting to cry mm-hmm. in front of him, which I didn't, I didn't even know where that was coming from. I was right. like, I don't, I, people don't see this. They know me for my smile. They know me for right, right. And I'm starting to cry. And he leans in <clears throat> as I'm like crying, like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like the quiet one, it was like the ugly one. And he leans in and he says, it's nice to see you, Sam. Mm. Oh my gosh. It's nice to see you. Mm. And I look up like, what are you talking about? It's nice to see me. And he said, all this while that I've known you, known you since your second year in the NFL, six, seven years now, he said, I've never seen this side of you. He said, it's, it's, it's nice to know that you're human. Mm. And and he said, hey, you never know. You never know. Maybe, maybe God is writing a book in your life. Wow. And, and you may only be on chapter two. Mm. And I'm still wiping the tears away and looking at him. And he said, hey, I, you know, we, he had to go to the airport. We had just popped in for a quick little dinner. And he said, I'm headed out now, but here's a number to a counselor. Here's the guy who I've been talking to because my friend, he had been going through some stuff. His wife had Mm -hmm. just got cancer and I mean, out of nowhere. And 
um, trying to figure out what is next in life, he said, hey, I, maybe, maybe you give him a call. And so I did. And so I picked up the phone. I called this therapist. My dad's a therapist, by the way. So I feel like I know how to maneuver yeah. around that, you know, mm-hmm. how to pretend and act like things. Yeah. Good. And I call him and his next opening was a week from that day, which was the day we reported to training camp. New season, new team, new contract. Mm-hmm. We, we reported that night at like three or four that evening. Well, that morning at like 10 a.m., I was in a counselor's office. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sitting and talking with this with this man, I figure I'll just kind of get in and get out. You know, like, let me put, yeah. pretend and let me do. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through, he looks at me, he says, Sam, I've got a question for you. I'm like, shoot, you know, I've been, go, I've been, I've been, you know, I, mm-hmm. whatever you got, let me answer it and get out. He says, what do you do when you get angry? And I, I was like, I, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I just try not to get angry. Mm-hmm. He looks at me again. He says, Sam, but what do you do when you get angry? And I, I, I just, I just don't get angry. He looks at me again. He says, "Sam, everyone gets angry. So what do you do when you get angry?" And once again, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know where it came from. Those tears started to flow, and it was like, <gasps> oh, like man. all of it. Hyperventilating. Hyper, hyperventilating. Yeah. The ugly, I was hyper. <gasps> mm-hmm. The tears. And he looks at me. I'm sitting down on this couch. He looks at me. He says, Sam, I need you to breathe. I'm <sighs> Sam, I need you to breathe. He says, I'm going to put my hand on your chest. I need you to breathe. So he puts his hand kind of over my heart. And I'm. <sighs> he said, I'm going to put my hand, Sam, I'm going to put my hand on your, on your belly, on your stomach. I need you to breathe. So I'm. <sighs> takes a step back and he says it's nice to see you Sam wow and oh by the way get used to hearing that and so he actually recommended he said I don't know if you if you journal but if not I would start I don't know if you like listening to music but if not I would start because you're about to go on a journey mm. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, you know, I kind of came back to myself. Okay, well, what does this mean? Like maybe two more meetings, three more meetings, right? We start our season in, in a month. Mm. He says, Sam, this is not a two or week or de- two or three week ordeal. This is more of like a two or three year. <laughs> right. And so, um, so I said, okay. So, so I left. Good. I went to train. I drove two and a half hours to Bourbonnet, Illinois, where we had our training camp. Mm-hmm. We had our first team meeting and do all our stuff. We check in. That night I go to my dorm room. We were staying in dorms and I threw some music on, I pulled my journal out and started to write. And as I'm writing and listening to these songs, like it was like songs about God's love for me. Mm-hmm. Songs like Marvin Sapp, he saw the best in me when oh, everyone yes. else around could only see the word. Right. Uh. And I'm and I'm crying, Tasha, as mm-hmm. these songs go. I don't I haven't cried this many times in years. Right. And I'm crying. Marvin Sapp will do it. I He'll mean his it. words are prosthetic. <laughs> like that's I'm telling you, I've been in his music like the last six months, but go Mm. ahead. Mm. Um, So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and I'm crying. I actually called up my friend 
who told me to meet with this counselor dude. And I was like, dude, what is going on? Like, why is this happening? And I even remember saying like, why does God love me so much? Mm. What did I do? Like, why does he love, like, why don't understand it? Mm. You know, and, and um, I went to sleep. I woke up the next day. That was our first official day of training camp or practice. Mm-hmm. We do our conditioning test, right? We do our running test. We come mm-hmm. back, guys go back in the locker room. They shower, they change, they go eat. I just sit there. I just sit there and I'm like trying to understand like what is going on. One of my teammates walks in. I'll end with this. He looks at me and he says, hey, hey, Acho. They call me Acho. He said, hey, Acho, you good? And usually, Tasha, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine or I'm tired. Oh, yeah. or It's been a long day. You know, the, 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 the yeah. things we say. Yeah. Um, this time I didn't do that. I looked back at him. I looked back at him and I said, honestly, dude, I'm not doing good. He continues to look at me and he says, Sam, I don't know whatever you got going on, but whatever it is, you you need to let it out. You have to let it out. So I kind of breathe, I sigh, kind of look around to see who's around. But then (laughs) I just started now, now like a tear started to drop now Mm -hmm. in the locker room, Tasha. Mm. And funny enough, like there are some people kind of coming in and out. One of my teammates walked in, a different guy walked in and he sees me sitting there and he sees my other guy sitting next to me. And he immediately goes straight to the speaker in our locker room. You know, we got music blasts and mm-hmm. whatever. And he changes the music, the music, the music, the music, puts on Marvin Sapp. He saw the best in me. He puts on Hillsong United. When I lost my heart to you, the song, same songs I was listening to the night before. Mm. Songs about God's love for me, songs how he sees the best in me. And as you can imagine, the tears started to flow, mm. hyperventilating. <gasps> and I'm like, at this point, I, I felt like I got the hang of it. I said, tell me to breathe. Tell me to breathe. Tell me to breathe. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'll breathe. I'm like, <sighs> yeah. And my teammate who had changed the music, he, he pulls up a chair and he looks at me and he says, Hey, Ach, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. And so that was the beginning of, that was how the book started. Let the world see you. And I tell that story in, in, the, in the book. It's um, how to be real when everyone else around you is pretending. Because see, what I discovered is that like, I love what you said, Tasha, about bringing your full self, dark chocolate, yeah. 5'10". Yeah, yeah. When you are you, God gets the glory, the people around you benefit, and the mm. world around you thrives mm. when you're you. Yes. When you pretend, none of that happens. Mm. Because being you isn't just for you. Yes, it benefits you, but it benefits all those around you. When I started showing people the real me, all of a sudden they received freedom from that. They found mm. that they could be themselves as well. And not, not only did we did I benefit individually, we benefited collectively. We had our best year in a decade. Went to the playoffs. I actually got injured that year, and I just started. Let me. I said, let me serve. I love serving. Let me just serve mm. my guys. Let me just sit with them. Let me learn, learn, and listen. And so. It benefits everyone. And that's what my book is all about. That's what Let the World See You is all about. Woo. Oh, my goodness. I could talk to you forever, but I can't. But I got just one. I got I got one. Well, two more questions. Just we'll do it real quick. But that is beautiful. Like, I'm telling you, wow, let the world see you. And and just the people that God placed around you just 
unknowingly to speak that over you and to speak that into your life and to 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 be where you are now because I don't think if you would have discovered that and gone through that you would be doing all the things that you're doing now. It's like discovering yourself and your purpose outside of playing football. Like, you know what I'm saying? Let letting go of that. Um you know, just just this last year in our country, we've gone through a lot, you know, and, um, you know, do you feel that we are in a racial awake, awakening or a reckoning here in America? Like, where do you feel that we are, um, we're at and what conversations aren't we having um, that we need to have around systemic racism? Yeah, so short answer, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I it's think an we opportunity. Are, yeah, it's yeah, it's an opportunity. I think we are in this like racial reckoning or awakening. So many people, so many of my white friends. I went to a predominantly white school. Many of my white friends didn't even you know you don't know these things. You don't know mm-hmm. what people go through. You don't. It's not mm-hmm. taught in school. Right. right. I remember like the, I remember because when I first went to school, I went to the school in Oak Cliff in South mm-hmm. Dallas. Okay. And we learned about all the black. I was first, second grade, learned about all the black heroes singing black national anthem. Like learning mm-hmm. about you know all these things. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Switch schools to a predominantly white school. Maybe Rosa Parks. I got Rosa mm-hmm. Parks and Martin Luther King. Yep. That's and then it. we watched Roots. And mm-hmm. then we said, all right, moving on. I'm like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Oh, and oh, by the way, three fifths black people have three fifths of a vote. Three fifths of a person. All right, now moving on to you know what? I'm like, wait, what? Can we not talk about this? And so I know now, more about European history. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, this makes, it makes actually all the sense in the world, but I'm like, we need, something needs to be done. So now people are starting to learn, um, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so that's, that's number one. And then secondly, and as you mentioned, it's an opportunity, right? What an opportunity to, mm-hmm. to, to be the change you want to see. But then the question is what conversations are not being had or what questions need to be asked that mm-hmm. aren't being asked. I think yes. the main question that needs to be asked asked is what can I do? Mm. Period. Mm-hmm. Not what don't I have and not I didn't know and not well that's somebody else's problem. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who can I go to? What books can I read? What people can I talk to? How can I change my lifestyle, right? All those questions spawn from what can I do Mm -hmm. to love people well, especially those who don't look like me. Very good. Yeah. What can I do? I think, I mean, even just biblically for a second, right? Like Jesus was a Jew and Mm -hmm. like, people have heard the story about the good Samaritan and maybe the woman at the well, like most Jews at the time avoided Samaria because that was a town Mm -hmm. of people who are mixed breeds, people Mm -hmm. who didn't look like them, people who didn't think like them or act like them. It could have been dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yet Jesus went to the woman at the well and met her. Yeah. He said, I had to go through Samaria as they were on Mm -hmm. their journey. He didn't have to go. He could have gone around. Most Mm -hmm. everyone else actually went around Samaria, took the long way. He said, no, I have to go. Mm-hmm. to Samaria. Samaria. I have to go to the south side of Chicago. I have to go to Atlanta. I have to go to my community, to my predominantly white neighborhood and right. talk to somebody and do something and have a conversation. I have to address my friends who are making these racist and racially insensitive comments and who have these racist and racially insensitive thought processes. I have to go because if I don't, mm-hmm. no one else will. 
Yeah. Yeah. What is your hope for the conversation? What is your hope for this conversation on race that we're having? What hope do you have? I hope. I hope that people wouldn't see this as an opportunity to pick sides. Mm-hmm. I just, I hope that people would see it as an opportunity to pick up the fence and move it out the way mm. and say, let's all go in this thing together. Mm. I hope okay. for my black brothers and sisters that we wouldn't be in the mindset of, man, the, well, the white man is doing this. Right? I remember being in college, my teammates, oh, the white man. I'm like, I hope that we would get rid of that of our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I hope and pray for my white brothers and sisters that they wouldn't stand, better yet, sit idly by and watch this moment pass them. I pray and hope that they would pick up the baton and seek justice mm-hmm. actively. Yeah. Love mercy mm-hmm. patiently and walk humbly, submissively with God. That's my hope that we would yeah. seek it. We would love it and we would walk it. Amen. Okay. And the final question as we close, that's good. That's good. And there's just so much, you know, but the great thing is to remain hopeful in this, you know, there's a lot of things that's discouraging right now. And, you know, my hope isn't really in people, but it's in, um, in God. And I think that's the, the thing because only God can transform hearts. And so um, that's so important. Um, what things, you know, self-care is important now. You're doing a lot. You know, how are you taking care of yourself? What's bringing you joy right now? Yeah, the biggest thing that's bringing me joy, Tasha, I'm so glad you asked that. I got a group uh-huh. of friends, maybe uh-huh. like about 12 of us or so, who every okay. Tuesday and Thursday we get on Zoom because we're all in different places now. We started okay. this in the pandemic a couple months ago. Uh-huh. And we just talk for like an hour, hour and a half. Um, it's kind of like a Bible study, but you can call it like, I just oh. call it family time. We just kind of kick it. We talk, talk about the word of God, but we talk about our lives. Like we got people, some people are in sports, people are on TV. Some people are doing, uh, in, in doctors. And we just have this family time mm. where we just get together and we like, we just spend time. And I told one of my friends, she texted me after she's in the group. She's out. And she's like, man, Sam, thanks for leading this and helping set this thing up. I said, this is the highlight of my week. Wow. Like these Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central to 5.15, that's the highlight of my week because wow. we're seeing people go through ups and downs, but seeing people grow. It's community. Right. It's community even in a pandemic. So that's it's when it comes to self-care. Um, if anyone hasn't been able to tell for the last hour, I love to talk. And so me talking, <laughs> you know what I mean? Me me too. Able, you know what I mean? So me being able to talk to people is like, is a joy. Even these podcasts, right? right. I have a podcast I do called Athletes for Justice. where We talk about stories of justice and hope. I love talking on that yeah. podcast. And, and I have another podcast. It's almost like talking, speaking, encouraging. Yeah. That's, those are the things that really bring me joy. And then I think the most important thing is just finding time alone. Yeah. I got a wife. I got three kids. Um, yeah. Doing a lot, as we all know, right? We're all doing right. so much with nonprofits and books and business and podcast. Right. Finding time alone has probably been the most important thing for me. That's good. 
That's good. Well, it's so great. I mean, I I love all the work that you're doing, um, the justice work that you're doing, and all the bridge building work. I mean, there were so many ties to to bridge building and bridging your community, your faith, and your family, and your work of justice. And um, just as I love like getting the opportunity, even to talk to athletes, for, so people can see that there's there's the dangers of the um, just one story, you know, that all they see is on the football screen, excuse me, on the TV screen. Um, I had a, um, a opportunity to interview Justin Holiday a few weeks ago and, and to see so many like athletes that are just, um, you know, full of faith in God um, and the work that you're doing on and off the field. And I know you're retired now and it's like you have all of these things going on. So proud of you. So proud of the work. Uh, we're definitely going to have to connect because I want to see the grocery store. I want to be a part of that. And I I love that. And um, so I'm definitely, I think now I'm adding this along with um, the other trip uh, with my other friend Jamal that I need to take to Chicago. <laughs> so we got to plan that. And then, um, and then I think, I think you invited me to, um, to Nigeria too, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, you trust know, me, Tasha, you're invited to Nigeria. I'm telling straight you, up, you're invited to that Tuesday, Thursday time. We got straight up yeah. everything, anything, <laughs> I'm telling everything, you. you're invited. I just did African ancestry. So I, I, haven't find this is where they kind of um, go deeper than ancestry DNA, but they trace it back to your um, ethnic tribe. And so um, I just um, I'm waiting any day now to find out more information about that. But, you know, of course, um, you know, um, in my history of my family's history um, through the Atlantic slave trade, it points back to Nigeria and Benin and Togo. Um, so you know what, Sam, we may be cousins. Oh, we we, may, I, very we well. may be cousins. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to let you know once I find out, but um, thank you so much for joining us on the be the bridge um, podcast. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, thank you for being the bridge to your community um, and drawing people to the work um, of the kingdom of God. And so I'm, I'm so proud of you. Keep it up. And it was great um, talking to you. Yes. Thank you so much, Tasha. Thank you. Hold on. I'm going to stop it. Go to the donors table if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Conitzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.